Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. I am joined by 11 of my Harvard classmates. Our guest is also one of our classmates, Todd Gitlin. Professor of Journalism and Sociology and Chair of the Ph.D. Program in Communications at Columbia University. He has written more than 15 books and has a novel, The Opposition, that is coming out in June of 2022. Todd, welcome. Thank you for coming. And tell us a little about what you're doing, about your new book, and uh, welcome. Well, thank you. What does retirement mean? People talk about it. I wonder. Why. Uh, yeah. I mean, I suppose people also talk about the, the, the death of the sun, but uh, <laughs> either avails. Um, so here we are. I was just ruminating on this, something of a cyclical notion of history. Uh, when, I, when I was at Harvard, at least for most of the time I was at Harvard, I've, I was living in a sense of extremity. And it was uh, not uh, the concoction of my own fevered brain, although my fevered brain made its contributions, but it was actually objectively the case that the world was on a knife edge. Uh, we in Toxin um, understood that uh, many people didn't or didn't want to. Um, it's only been in some recent years, actually, that I've come to understand how relatively little we in my crowd understood about how close the world was to total destruction during the missile crisis. Uh, we have first-rate scholarship on the question, and I recommend you very highly a book by a historian who, alas, died just recently named Marty Sherwin. Uh, Marty Sherwin taught for many years at, at Tufts. He's one of the major historians of the nuclear age. Uh, he was also, as it turns out, in the, I forget which section of the armed forces during the missile crisis. Um, and what he dug out of the archives, he was not the only one to do it, he did it most thoroughly, was that uh, I, don't, I don't want to go go wholly into detail, but if you're if you're at all interested in this, go rummage around on YouTube and find a PBS series called "The Man Who Saved the World." You may find oh, yeah. there are two by that name, um, but the one I have in mind is about a Soviet naval officer named Arkhipov, who was um, one of the three. Russians on a submarine off the coast, off the southeast coast of the U.S., who were designated to decide whether to open fire with their nuclear torpedoes at a nearby um, um, aircraft carrier. And um, the captain and the political commissar on board wanted to do it. They'd been given instructions which hadn't been countermanded from Moscow. 
uh, Arkhipov said, well, let's wait a little while, uh, see what develops. And what was developing was that the, the crew of this, this, uh, uh, this submarine was freaking out. They, they had been sent from the Arctic. They had no air conditioning. Um, it was 120 degrees in their engine room. Uh, there were depth charges falling all around them. And they, you know, in that state of panic, trying to figure out whether to, you know, go the, you know, to drop the big one, as Randy Newman used to say. And um, uh, he said, wait, let's wait. And they waited. But I, you know, as, as much as I had intuited with, with my band of, of, um, of freaked out uh, pals, uh, we were actually much closer to nuclear war in more concrete ways than uh, anybody knew. I, I only learned this about 10 years ago when I heard Marty Sherwin talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, there we were on the cusp, on the knife edge, and now we're on a different kind of knife edge. Um, I'm thinking of two, actually. Um, uh, there's the, the political knife edge and the climatic knife edge. I don't have to regale you all with information about the climatic knife edge, which is all around us to see. Uh, I've been quite involved recently in the political knife edge, which uh, a, a story that hasn't come to a conclusion yet, but um, I don't think it takes a great deal of expertise to realize that we're on the brink of installing a minority rule government, thanks to uh, all kinds of Republican connivance, democratic ineptitude, um, we're in the we're in we're far along a path toward the the uh, uh, unraveling of the one of the great achievements of the '60s, namely the Voting Rights Act. Right. We are we this ridiculous 18th century constitution we're saddled with is now uh, taking its revenge, and the uh, I don't I don't want to go on in in great vein, uh, in great detail about this. So suffice to say that I'm I've been sufficiently um, exercised and uh, worried about this in recent days that I've done something in all my entire political life up to this point I'd never done before. Namely, I've been part of an alliance with a right-wing um, uh, ideologue um, to promote democracy, uh, which is at risk. And the person I'm alluding to is Bill Crystal, who was a few years behind us at Harvard. Um, Bill Kristol was a never Trumper after a long career as a Republican advisor. Uh, he became a never Trumper and helped start a very interesting um, online magazine called The Bulwark. And through a mutual friend, Jeff Isaac, who teaches political theory at the University of Indiana, we started talking a few months ago about trying to find a, a united front position we could take that would uh, include anybody who was interested in the priority of democratic rules. And uh, so we've written in a number of statements. Uh, we've done uh, some appearances. We're trying to figure out what to do with this next. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, 
staggering. I mean, I think insofar as I can remember any clarity, what it felt like to be doing what we were doing in 1960, 61, 62, 63, I, I, you know, I, I felt palpably a sort of cloud of the possibility of the impossible, that is the, the awfulness of what might be staring us in the face. There was also in the, in the early 60s, as you all remember in different ways, a sense of opening, a sense of opportunity, sense of turning the page. Certainly civil rights movement was an important part of that. So was our own little movement. Um, and eventually for me, it carried me into SDS and other adventures in trying to get the country sane or saner. Um, I feel once again, that we are on the brink of disaster. Uh, and this is a disaster long in the making. So today here we are having to argue once again for voting rights. I don't know about the rest of you, but I have very vivid memories of what I was hearing from the deep south, from Mississippi and Alabama. I was never there myself, but I heard a lot about what people were going through down there. That was sort of my invitation to American reality. And now here we are again, except now the guys who are doing it are not usually wearing the Ku Klux Klan robes, but they are running state legislatures and, and they are uh, electing judges and they are trying to uh, overthrow the US government by force and violence and, and so on. And there, there's an uncanniness about this feeling I have. I don't think it's just me. Um, I have run into others who likewise feel, no, this, who's writing this script? Who's writing this scenario? This is crazy. Well, it is, it's, it's our normal crazy. Um, so what I've been doing, so I've, I still teach at Columbia and I, uh, I've been teaching graduate courses primarily in recent years, one of them about disinformation um, and the other about uh, fascism uh, and other right-wing movements um, and writing accordingly, um, mostly small pieces. But um, what, what Ken is alluding to is that I, 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 at many times in the last, oh God, four decades, I set out, I tried to find a way to write about the 60s the political 60s, the new left 60s, the upheaval 60s, with an eye to somehow being true to the texture of experience. Now, obviously not everybody's experience. There were many millions of experiences, but there's a, there are quite, sort of matters of, of mood and relationship, decorum, language, I've read, I think, just about everything that's been published. Um, I guess I can no longer say almost everything, but a ton, uh, uh, both in uh, fictional and non-fictional form about the 60s. I've started writing about it uh, uh, 30 plus years ago. I have frequently had the feeling that it wasn't getting down on paper. The it, namely, what was the quality of life? 
What did it feel like to be embroiled in these events and experiences and relationships? So I've made over the years a number of attempts to uh, try to get some of that down on paper. Uh, they all ran aground um, until about 10 years ago. I decided to try again while I still uh, was uh, capable of typing. And um, so I worked on this novel for, you know, eight or nine years. Uh, finally, it's coming out in June. It's called The Opposition. And I, what I tried to do in it, it's, it follows more or less eight characters who meet at the University of Michigan in 1963. And it follows them through 1970, more or less, with some prequels and sequels. And it, it attempts to, number one, recreate you know, the sense of a, a kind of a way of life that was, um, you know, whatever its significance, and we could debate the significance or insignificance of it, was at least remarkable. It was a, kind of a, an American wonder, uh, like it or not. And, um, and the second thing I tried to do was to embed the stories of individuals who were in some ways composites of people I actually knew, and sometimes more, more fabricated than that. Um, and or sometimes even closer than that. And I, I was trying to set these personal life choices that people were making about, about love, about location, about career, about danger, uh, about America and Vietnam especially, but also how to react to the civil rights movement in the South. I tried to place these personal stories amid a sense of what's going on in the White House, in the war, in the South, um, and in, you know, the sort of the immensities that are taking place in America. So that, that's my attempt. That's, that's my grand mm -hmm. design. Uh, I, I uh, last I read the manuscript, which was last week, I liked it. Uh, no doubt I would continue to pick at it if I had the, the inclination, but I, uh, I'm glad I finally got around <laughs> to doing it. So that's the book called The Opposition. I, you know, I feel very much, I've, I'm an old man. Um, I, don't, I don't feel terribly crotchety about it, but I feel strange about it. On the other hand, I think I've felt strange about being a young man too. Uh, I think, our, our, I mean, I think if you have your antennae open, Strangeness is uh, writing the script, and it's not the story any of us. No, it's not the story that any of us were furnished with when we passed through grade school and were told about the nature of the world and uh, the nature of the American history or any of that. I mean, we're still writhing in uh, in in, un, in an extended emergency. And it was a weird thing to be acting on when you were 17. I remember my grandmother, I was visiting my grandmother once, probably sometime around 1961. And she, she said, why you, why you, you, you show, you show, you look so weighed down where you, you look like you're carrying the world on your shoulders. And uh, I said, uh, I don't know exactly what I said, but I said, yeah, well, damn right. I better, um, 
I, uh, I do think, though, it's kind of an interesting thing to me that given how many people, how many writers, filmmakers, other artists pass through the 60s, that we don't have better rendition of it, a more life, a, a more proximate version of what happened, about what, what it was actually like to live in those circumstances. So um, I've been feeling this way for many years. I've written it, sort of complaining about how little we have excavated. Um, and then, you know, it sort of, it, it was inevitable that if I lived long enough, I would make, take my shot at it. And um, so that's what I've done. I've also, I've, I've wrote another, since I've been, since I've been COVID uh, sequestered, which is coming on to two years now, I've been, I'm living in upstate New York. Uh, I go down to the city to teach, um, but mostly I'm up here. I've been, um, I also wrote a memoir that has a different approach to things and more, more personal. And when I'm done contending with the publication of the novel, I'll go back and see what I want to do with it. Um, I, I must say, I, when, when I am together with some of you and others who I knew then, uh, I find that conversations are not hard to renew. It's as if some conversation has been going on um, through all the vicissitudes of our lives for a long time. Um, a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly how this started, but uh, Ken Porter, who some of you may remember, uh, uh, who lived across the hall from me in Clinton House, um, I think it was his idea to get together regularly with a couple of other Quincyites, John Ehrenreich, and John Wiener. We started getting together once a week or so on for dinner. Uh, once a month, I should say. Uh, Ken uh, left us a couple of years ago, but John and John uh, and I still get together every few weeks and sort through uh, remarkable things that we're encountering. And I'm glad to say that they're, they're thriving. John Wiener, who was a Marxist economist when I knew him, uh, is now a businessman open, uh, running um, uh, private hospitals around the world and quite involved in uh, trying to make the country saner. And John Ehrenreich, who is retired from his second or third career, I'm not sure. He was, he's a therapist. I guess he's still maybe a, at times a therapist after teaching for many years in American studies. Uh, John is about to, John who has a technical biological education is, uh, has just started writing a book about pandemics, timely. Um, he has been talking with us about, knowledgeably about uh, the, the, the other dimension of strangeness that's, that's become our lives. Um, and I, you know, it was not hard, even though some of us hadn't seen each other in, you know, decades wasn't hard to resume a whole lot of conversations, uh, some of which were political, but some of which were not, at least in a simple sense. Todd, I have, I have a question yeah. for you. I, I'd like you to, to explain uh, specifically what it is about the American Constitution that you think is setting us up for such a terrible fall. Okay. Um, first of all, it's, 
it has the demerit of being the first democratic or quasi-democratic constitution, which means it's operating on 18th century premises. So it's operating on the premise that it's property white men who ought to rule, number one. It's operating secondly on the premise that uh, the states are the operative entities of political government. Um, that the United States is sort of a barely united, um, sort of patched together uh, quilt or hodgepodge of, of contending interests. Uh, it has launched, uh, it, it landed a tremendous amount of power uh, in the hands of courts that were um, unelected. Um, sometimes we like the results. Um, we lived through a period when I was quite happy with a lot of the results, but this is an insanity. We, here's, an, here's a way to put it. We have, uh, I believe, twice since 1988 had uh, a, a president placed in the White House who won the national popular vote. They were both named Bush, George H.W. and George W., um, I believe if I counted correctly, there are eight other elections that have taken place since 1988, presidential elections. And in every one of the others, the minority party, which was the Republican Party, took power. I, I mean, now, this is not serious, people. <laughs> we, Joe Biden just tried to convince the world that America is still a, the, the ringing beacon of democratic procedure but who can take this seriously we have and i'm not even here i'm not even just talking about the kind of maneuvers that trump and his people mm -hmm. were trying to uh, undertake on january 6th and right. and since to distort the uh, collection and and uh, itemizing of, of ballots and so on uh, but the the constitution was not set up to make for a national political entity that could function as such, um, that would not be prisoner of the uh, uh, of of uh, the small states, largely rural, largely unrepresentative of the population by any standard you might choose to single out. Uh, I mean, though, I mean, we could, I could go on, and but mm -hmm. you know, the very okay. first, I mean, I, I started to feel the tanks rolling in 2000, I, and not to be overly dramatic about it, but Bush v. Gore was, was the you know, began a right. new wave of, of uh, minority rule, which was, um. Uh, which itself was the culmination of what had been going on in the Republican Party as a bulldozer. I, I wrote a book once using that term. You know, starting from the time, I, I guess we could date it from Reagan or we could date it maybe somewhat more pointedly to Newt Gingrich in 1994. And the, 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 the beginning of the, uh, of the assumption on the part of the Republican Party that the, that that Democrats were not legitimate. They were not legitimate holders of power. That the the reforms of the 1960s were 
were great mistakes. They were uh, intrusions in an otherwise um, uh, unruffled and and um, uh, well put together history. And and it, you know, the, I was I remember thinking in in 2000 during the the long Florida count. Are we just going to sit by and watch this? Is that what this must be? What it feels like when you know in Chile in 1973 or Todd is the basic problem that you know we're not a democracy we're a republic. Yes, the republic allows the small states to have undue influence. So unless we change that, what's the solution? I mean the <laughs> the solution is a reinvention of politics. I mean I don't. Uh, that is to say, the solution is taking democratic charge of the institutions which are the guardrails of some modicum of democracy, whether that means local elections, it means allocation of seats, it means gerrymandering matters, uh, it means reinforcing some very tenuous uh, arrangements which were never, well, I, I wouldn't put it this way. I, don't, I wouldn't say nobody ever imagined Donald Trump, um, but I don't think we, I, I think even those who were worried about tyranny in the, the Federalist Papers and, and uh, in that late 18th century period could imagine how close a tyrant could come to actually taking the whole enterprise and running off with it. And, right. you know, I don't think that story is yet over. Talking about, um, you know, remaking our institutions, which is, you know, a rather large undertaking, but isn't there something more specific for this moment? I mean, you started out talking about you had a sense of extremity, then you have a sense of extremity now. Um, shouldn't we, and, and we have to do something, Shouldn't we be focusing our attention now on the 2022 midterms and essentially leave some of the larger concerns, even about the climate and about the larger issue of democracy aside and just say, we got to do that one because if the 2022 midterms go badly, it's going to be really bad for the climate and it's going to be really bad for democracy. And, you know, I was just wondering if you have any specific things to say about that. Well, you know, as the, the, the emergencies compound and it, from day to day, week to week, it's, it's hard to know where your uh, attention might, might most fruitfully be paid. Um, mm -hmm. We have a, a crisis of the, the unraveling of small D democratic institutions. We have the climate for sure. I've been involved Anne was involved in some of this. Um, we, uh, I was involved with uh, the Harvard Divest fossil fuel campaign, which right. met with a certain surprising success this year. Uh, I certainly agree about the importance of the 2022 elections. And I think if we don't get significant voting reform in the form of what's now called the Freedom to Vote Act, if we don't get it real fast, then we've already foregone the possibility to um, put it to work in 2022. And 
because of the peculiar ways in which we elect representatives and senators, by the time we roll around to 2024, all bets are off. That's yeah. been one of my pet expressions for some years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I certainly honor people who have different senses of urgency about this issue and that issue. To me, they, they're not identical. They are intertangled. And the, the core of it is that we have been subjected to minority rule. Um, this is not the first time Americans have suffered minority rule. I mean, the constitution was written to secure minority rule. And there were many after 700,000 people died in the civil war, there were many thought, well, okay, we now we turn that page. We now have the 14th amendment, which stipulates equality in, in the States, but that's a dead letter. Uh, CF Texas and Mississippi in recent days. Um, we, we uh, I, I mean, I think that these institutions of safeguard and of, you know, you'll pardon me, rationality are uh, un, 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 uh, ill-prepared to address the stupendous inequalities, the oligarchy domination, which has been, you know, intensely growing for the last 40 years. And, um, you know, sooner or later, you know, you run out of preliminaries. I mean, you run out of, you run out of anticipating the future. The future got here. Future got here in the person of Donald Trump and his cronies. It got here in the form of uh, melting uh, ice caps and uh, got here in the form of uh, polluted rivers and, and air that's unbreathable. Uh, it got here in the form of uh, political violence, which is now normalized uh, in uh, one of our two major political parties. Uh, well, this is the real deal. Well, t- Todd, tell us, tell me about germ- journalism now. Are they uh, is that going to save us? I mean, who's who's? W- what's your sense of that? Well, I mean, there are a lot of chickens coming to a lot of roosts here. Um, I actually, because somebody asked me about it not too long ago, I I looked up an article I wrote in 1981 after Reagan's election. Um, in which I, after talking to a number of political journalists, this is when I was at Berkeley, but I was talking to people elsewhere as well. I, I realized that the, the mainstream press had a propensity to bend over backwards to see common sense and symmetry between the, the Republican and Democratic parties that, that they were, so Reagan got off uh, unscathed, un, you know, um, largely unquestioned about his absurd uh, commitments. Um, so this is, you know, it's not brand new that journalists were, you know, colluding with this, the childish dimension, childish elements of American politics. I remember once I was 
it must have been 1980 or 81. I was I was in New York for some reason. I was sharing a cab with a guy who turned out to be a, a 60 Minutes producer. So I was complaining about uh, how we weren't really hearing much about what was really at stake in the election and how, well, you know, we were, we were hearing more and more of, uh, you know, color commentary on, on uh, you know, sports related sports, you know, uh, who's ahead, who's behind sort of reportage. And, and I, so he was, uh, he listened and, and he nodded and he said, you know, we talk about <clears throat> this all the time. He said, this is 1980, it's more than 40 years ago. He said, we talk about this all the time. We just can't figure out how to do it differently. Well, my Lord, I mean, if, if American medicine were in that condition, you'd have to say it's time for a big fat revamp. Um, journalism is a, is a poisoned well. It's been poisoned by oligarchy. It's been poisoned by suspicion. Uh, it's been poisoned by lies, government lies, which we don't have time to go into, but not only government lies, corporate lies. Um, you know, our uh, journalism is not up to the burden that's been placed on it. They, you know, the, the, the enlightenment idea of journalism was, you know, you should know the truth and the truth should make you free. So we're going to tell people some facts and they're going to figure it out because they're high-minded and uh, honorable and they want the best. And yeah, they have some disturbing tendencies toward faction and so on, but we can, we can overcome that. Um, and you know, journalism is is a <laughs> is an industry that loves to give itself awards. Uh, Hollywood and, and journalism, I think, are pretty much at the top of that list. And so, you know, there are I don't know how many associations of journalists and lawyers and others in New York and elsewhere who get together every year and pass out rewards for having seen this truth and that truth. But they don't want to face, and who has who wants to face the, the cataclysm that afflicts an entire profession? What they don't really know how to acknowledge is that they don't know how to connect the dots. So they can always point to yeah, we had this story, we had that story, we had it. I once, when I was writing my dissertation, which was about media and politics, uh, I had an interesting interview with Max Frankel, who was then the executive editor, I guess was his title of the New York Times. We were talking about the, this, I think I was probably, this was probably around 1975. And, and I said, um, I said, how do you, when you look back at coverage of the Vietnam War, how do you, how do you feel about it? And he said something like this. He said, you know, well, we actually did that at one point. We took all of our Vietnam War coverage going back to the early 60s. We spread it all out. We looked at it and we said, what do we have here? And, and then we felt good. You know, we felt good about what we had done uh, because it, it was all there, but it, it was all there in such a hodge disconnected, um, uh, uh, yeah. somehow belittled way that it, you, you, you couldn't, I mean, unless you were read elsewhere and thought elsewhere, you couldn't 
find the story, mm-hmm. which was after all, not a difficult story. It was mm-hmm. actually not a complex story. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he was a very shrewd and unusually thoughtful, you know, elder statesman of mainstream journalism. I, 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 I mean, I find that I had a, the last time, I, I don't know him well, I've met him a few times. I, I had, I think the last time I talked to him was after the, the New York Times issued its apology, sort of apology for misleading coverage of the of Iraq and uh, weapons of mass destruction and so on. And uh, they had just published it. I called him up and asked him what I thought. <laughs> and he, what he said was this, well, it's a start. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Max Frankel is not a, you know, a wild-eyed radical. I mean, he's a very sober, uh, thoughtful uh, man who's been through the world of journalism at its highest levels. And he's aghast. I mean, I, I, this is now more than 10 years ago, but I think we have to be aghast. It took until, what, 2017? before the New York Times was willing to use the word lie in a front page story about the, the, the leaders of American politics. I mean, it's not serious, people. <laughs> it's not no. serious. <clears throat> one, so, but but can one, just one other thing. I mean, as, I, I, mean I appreciate journalism. Uh, some of my best friends are journalists and I, I think it's indispensable, but I think we've gone so far into the domain of untruth in the entire culture, that journalism is only one of several co-responsible agencies, institutions, phenomena that, that is uh, uh, inadequate to a, 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 so a deeply corrupted and wrongheaded um, contemptuous attitude toward both Republican virtues, lowercase r, and Democratic virtues. It's overwhelmed. And here I'm talking about the high end of journalism. I'm not talking about all the little papers that are closing because they can no longer find a business model that even halfway works. Uh, I'm talking about the usurpation of, uh, of, of, of people's time by, uh, by the, the, the lying machine uh, that uh, we, we call cable news, Fox News in particular. Um, it's beyond any particular institution. It's an all hands on deck situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't think we can talk about journalism in the abstract to too fruitfully, they, it's a matter of who owns the given journals and sources of media and how do they get their money and whose interests do they serve? Uh, the New York Times didn't want the Millet massacre covered. Uh, Seymour Hersh uh, had got leverage because they were mainly afraid that the story could go elsewhere uh, to another, to a rival, but they didn't want that story out because the New York Times like the rest of the country's major uh, media, they were supporting the wars and, and suppressing information that would expose what was behind those wars and you know previous wars and succeeding wars. So well, 
That's I, what we have I, to look at. Yeah, I, I, I largely agree, Sean. I think it's even worse than that. Um, I, I, if anybody's interested, send me a note and I'll, I'll tell you where to find some writing about how Rupert Murdoch was able to establish a cable news network, uh, having first established an entertainment network and being cleared to do so by the FCC in the 1980s, although it was the network that was uh, majority controlled by a foreign corporation, namely News Corporation, which was primarily Australian. Uh, there's been a lot of, unfortunately, not terribly well-known reporting. Canaletta, who used to write a, a lot about Murdoch right. in The New Yorker, uh, you know, has a lot of it. And I've interviewed some people involved in it. It was a fraud. It was a crime. A crime was committed to permit Rupert Murdoch to own a what was originally a relatively small entertainment network which placed him in an enormously advantageous position vis-a-vis -vis the cable TV operators who decide what's actually coming through your pipe. And put, he, using the leverage of his success as an entertainment marketer of such as uh, Married with Children and The Simpsons, uh, he was able to swing special deals with cable operators, which put him in the catbird seat, whatever exactly that is, so that when he decided to start the news channel in 1996, he had a, a free and clear way to do it. I mean, this is, you know, my father used to tell me about, uh, you know, books about the robber barons you know, of the 19, of the uh, 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s. He is, you know, one of the, one of the great robber barons of all time. Still at it. Yeah, un unfortunately, uh, the difference between them and the New York Times and Washington Post and NBC and all of that is, is a matter of degree. The foreign news coverage, particularly, and the labor coverage, it's all done in, in coordination with the Pentagon and the State Department and other interests are in there cozying up. It's an official kind of a press that we're getting. And that's that's one of the major problems that we're facing now. I mean, Assange and what he exposed, any journalist worth their salt, they would be trying to come out and defend um, uh, Assange and try to keep this persecution from being completed. But most of them aren't doing it because they couldn't. They can't even, they could, couldn't do it on their news programs. It's not a, they no. can talk about Navalny to the, really, the, the cocks come home, but they can't talk about Assange the same way. Well, well I'm, I'm not an Assange fan, but that's, that's another right. story. Yeah, um, I'm concerned, you know, I, I used to you know. I'm an Assange fan. I, AB, ABC. The information, the information that the public needs, the people need to have a representative democracy, which is a republic as a representative democracy, this information is being concealed and Assange and um, Snowden and some others, they, they opened the facts up to the public. Well, I, I don't want to get into the weeds of Assange. I mean, I think there are people who've done it much better and more responsibly, like the Panama Papers Consortium of Journalists and the 
the more recent one, I forget what it's called, it also begins with a P. Uh, I mean, there are now consortiums of news organizations everywhere that I think are doing an honest job. Uh, Assange played, Assange, Assange used the stuff he unearthed in order to bolster some of the worst regimes in the world. So I don't consider, consider him a hero of journalism. But I, I just want to, I just want to mention this. I, I knew, I got to know a few years ago, uh, a journalist named Bill, um, oh God, I'm blocking his name. Here we go. Senior moment. Uh, Bill, <laughs> uh, who was a correspondent at ABC. Um, he went to uh, Wesleyan, but that wouldn't identify him for you. And he, I heard a lot from him about how for years he tried to get ABC to take climate seriously as a story. And, uh, and how, you know, it made little squeaky concessions to do more of this and that, but it was pushing uphill. It was pushing the boulder uphill all the time. Today, of course, the, all the mainstreamers, you know, uh, are, you know, flooded as it were with uh, in, information that people need to understand about, you know, why it's raining in the Arctic and why uh, Siberia is burning. Uh, but for many years, it was perfectly evident to uh, to the ninety nine percent of climate scientists that the Earth was being fundamentally transformed, and there was you know there was, was not the business of the news media to you know to uh, to take seriously. I mean it's an it's an appalling failure. Mm -hmm. Alden, one of the questions one of the questions you used an interesting term a little while ago. You talked about the journalist industry like it's the fossil fuel industry, like the automobile industry, like various other industries. Now, we, we have the Second Amendment. We happen to think that journalism is important. Maybe there should have been a second and a half uh, amendment which says automobile transportation also is protected and no one will, no state shall pass a law to protect that. Should we think maybe that journalism needs a whole new, I don't know, ground to be to be put into and it shouldn't be an industry perhaps it should be some other uh utility Public service well i'll tell you um a number of my colleagues have been writing this for some time at the columbia journalism uh, school there is no way to sustain even ordinary journalism without some public subvention whether in the form of tax write-off or nonprofit support, um, there's just no way to do it because no, it's not commercially viable. Um, and uh, so, if, if you say this, my, my colleague Nick Lemon has written about this. Michael Schutz and others, uh, my colleagues, have written about this. It, it's, the reaction from journalists is very interesting. They get very nervous at the thought of uh, government intervention in some form, because as soon as they hear the words government intervention, they see the heavy hand of Stalinism uh, or you know, Modi in India or something like that, which are you know, genuine things to worry about, God knows. But um, they are not themselves, 
I think they have a, they, I'm overgeneralizing vastly. I think journalists themselves are uneasy uh, with the notion that they have a public obligation which goes beyond boilerplate about keeping the people informed. Um, they are always looking over their shoulders at the power of political authorities to do damage. And that's for good reason. However, they are not in general looking over their shoulders at the likes of Rupert Murdoch uh, and the big corporations that run the news world uh, who have turned uh, you know, private equity companies that that now buy big newspaper chains and and drain them of resources. Um, it's it's they do not, you know, they do not have a sufficiently public spirit. Uh, just you know, I mean, if we if 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 medicine were as um, confined and, and parochial in its concerns as journalism, uh, I think we would be horrified, especially at the time of a pandemic. But uh, the, the journalists, I think, are embarrassed at, at the thought that they carry a, a collective responsibility. Uh, it's, um, it, it flies in the face of the mystique, they of the the mythology they tell themselves that they are they are by by going through their routines, they're going through, uh, you know, they're they're discharging their obligation. It's as if you know medicine. It's as if medicine was, would be satisfied at taking their temperature. Um, I, I mean, it's 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 a sad it's a sad thing. I think it's worse than that, especially at the New York Times. Um, um, the Times has lied and served as a propaganda arm for the overdogs, as Sid Shanberg called them, against the underdogs before the Times fired him for talking about these things. So it's, it's not the villains out there, Fox and Murdoch and Republicans, it, it's institutions, I agree with John, um, who, uh, who lie and lie for a reason to get resources allocated to their friends. Well, this, you know, Marcia, I mean, this is not a new story. I mean, the, 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 the you know, there is a sort of a ruling class especially in a, in a major metropolitan area. And so the New York Times owners um, sort of physically, literally or, or figuratively sit around a table with major real estate developers, uh, with um, the, uh, you know, the high-minded think tankers, um, and they let the city rot. Or rather, they encourage it to rot while cleaning up on it. Uh, I mean, I you know I take this personally as a New Yorker. It, it 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 some years ago it became really depressing to walk down just about any major street in the city and see how many 
storefronts were closed. And the reason they were closed is that it was more profitable for the proprietors to leave them empty because they were getting tax relief for doing so. And this passed through so many administrations. It was true. I mean, it was never really seriously resisted by any of the political administrations. I, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an appalling misuse of public resource that you, 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 you're paying people to keep these properties off, off the market, leaving them free to elevate their rents to ridiculous extremes. You're building monstrosities like Hudson Yards. Thank you, Mr. Bloomberg. Uh, and, uh, and permitting uh, the tycoons to build their ridiculous skinny midtown uh, vertical empires. I, I mean, this is, again, you know, I, this, we're, we're in the realm of, you know, of Jay Gould and, and, and JP Morgan uh, and company. And, um, you know, the, the New York Times is not ill disposed toward that dispensation. It's, it can live fine with it. It's, um, you know, it, have any of you read Balzac? You know, Balzac writing about 1830s and in Paris and a time of maximal corruption. He's got nothing on us. Well, we'd like you to come back though when the book comes out. When is it coming out? In June? June 2nd? June 1st, yeah. June 1st. Yeah. And then we'll all read it. And uh, But thanks for coming on. I'd love to. It'd be my pleasure. That was Todd Gitlin. His new book is titled The Opposition and will be out in the spring. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>